This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Dreams. I'm Janet Walker, Professor of Film and Media Studies, and it is my great pleasure to serve as moderator for the panel this evening. We have the filmmakers... Professor Stefan Miescher and R. Lane Clark. And then we have a very special guest all the way from Pretoria, South Africa, who is Dr. Rudo Sanyanga. Dr. Sanyanga is Africa Program Director of International Rivers, a very prominent human rights and uh, environmental organization, a nonprofit that has worked throughout the world with dam impacted communities. So we're really thrilled to have her, and I'd like to thank the Mellon Sawyer Seminar for Energy Justice and Global Perspective for collaborating on this, uh, supporting her visit along with the Carsey Wolf Center. So thank you so much, Rudo, for coming. I want to start with you because we're thrilled to have the benefit of your presence and your expertise, and I know that what you're going to say is going to be extremely helpful in illuminating our conversation in the film. So... I'd like to invite you to begin by talking a little bit about your work. Okay. Um, Good evening, everyone. Um, And uh, congrats to Stefan and Lane for this uh, film. Um, I work for International Rivers. It was formed in uh, 1985 uh, by a group of uh, uh, dam-affected people. Um, our work um, is spread uh, in five different regions in Latin America, uh, in Africa, in India, the Mekong, and in China. Uh, we are a very small organization <laughs> um, with our head office in Oakland, California. <laughs> Um, The mission of International Rivers is to protect rivers and the rights of communities that are affected by dam building. Uh, This film that we've just seen represents a model of the kind of development uh, that we continue to see. Um, The World Dam Commission... Uh, which was constituted by the World Bank uh, as a result of agitation from groups like International Rivers in 1998, uh, realized that uh, of 1,000 large dams that they had studied, that um, the benefits of uh, the dams were hardly realized in most of the developing countries. There are issues of... um, the dams being uneconomic, um, people being displaced without compensation. Um, in, in continents like Africa, we find that uh, the power that is generated is mainly to benefit extractive industry. And as I speak now, 600 million people in sub-Saharan Africa have no access to electricity. Yet we have... Um, some of the largest uh, hydro dam projects, Kariba, uh, the Akosombo, uh, the Renaissance in um, Ethiopia, the Kaborabasa in Mozambique, uh, just to name a few. 
Thank you very much. Well, you, I'll, I'll ask a follow-up question, and then I'll turn to our other guests. Um, you alluded to the film, and you said uh, the kinds of issues that we're seeing in the film. W would you uh, care to mention a few sections from the film that uh, you feel resonate with the kind of work you're doing or that uh, might be similar or different from a case that you've experienced elsewhere on the continent of Africa? Um, the, one of the major issues is the, the poor planning that uh, goes into development of large dams and the unwillingness, uh, as far as I'm concerned, unwillingness by um, political leaders to let go of their dreams, even when they realize that uh, they are going to indebt the country. Um, they are not going to benefit the majority of the people. They use uh, these large um, structures as a symbol of uh, nation building, of grandeur, or maybe political gains. Um, and um, as we speak now, there's a, another aspect of um, labor issues which is coming and uh, um, is increasing so much with the involvement of new players in the dam building like uh, the Chinese actors where these, uh, the Chinese bring along uh, their own um, people uh, into, the, in, into the regions where they are building large dams uh, the profits are going over there and there's also another big issue which is similar. We found it with Kaborabasa, with uh, the Bujigali Dam in, um, in Uganda where the contracts between um, the uh, consumers, the large industrial consumers of the electricity and the governments are so skewed to the benefit of uh, the investor, such that at the end, uh, the government and the citizens end up subsidizing those large projects, subsidizing power, yet the country is not benefiting from that power. Mm -hmm. I think what you're saying may be surprising to many people who assume that the, the benefits percolate out, even though on the margins people... Uh, benefit less or or not at all, but it's just shocking to hear you talk about the how these mega projects are ultimately uh, not successful and accrue to the benefit of the the corporations or other international actors. Yeah, yes, indeed, um, we have an example right now of um, one of um, the dams in the Democratic Republic of uh, of Congo, the Inga. Grand Inga Dam, uh, which is being built specifically for the mines in southern, um, southeastern uh, Democratic Republic of Congo and for export to South Africa. Yet in Congo, the, uh, the access rate for electricity for the population is about, depending on who you are speaking to, between 9 and 14 percent access well, rate. Well, yeah, and yet shocking. the government is not considering. And this project is going to cost um, 80 billion, 
uh, US dollars. That, that is an estimate of 10 years ago, actually. It could be more by now. And the country can hardly afford that. So those are some of and the issues. That we're yeah. Thank you very much. Well, now, turning to Professor, Professor Stefan Miescher. Stefan, congratulations on this marvelous film. Um, I wanted to ask you how the project evolved, given that an earlier book you wrote was Making Men in Ghana, which explored the life stories of, uh, was it eight, eight. Uh, yeah. Ghanaian men, and, the, and explored how the, the changing meanings of becoming a man in modern Africa. So now suddenly here you are writing a definitive book on the Akasombo Dam. And I'm just wondering how, how you went from <laughs> this earlier project to this and, and how, how uh, the book evolved. Well, from masculinity to development, yeah. So while I was doing the research for this book, I was living on Kwau, which is a ridge in the southern part of Ghana, and in the distance, I could see the Ofram, which is a side, which is a branch of the Volta River, of the Volta Lake. And many of the elderly men I talked with, they kind of pointed out, you know, before the lake came, we used to have cocoa farms there, and you know that's um, where we farmed. But then, you know, the lake came, and we lost these farms. And actually, with the lake, the weather changed; it's much drier now, and the farms we had left, they all burned. And so I kind of became curious, well, how did this huge lake came about? And of course, I knew Akasomba as a good tourist. I had been to the Akasomba <laughs> Dam. It's, you know, Ghana's most important tourist destination. And, but I thought I would like to learn about the history of this large dam project, but I also would like to learn what it has meant to ordinary people. And so in a way, it, was, it was a good, seemed like a good starting point for me, starting with these with these elderly men I was working with to kind of see what this dam has meant for people on the ground. And actually, one of the first part of my research was to go to one of these resettlement towns. And I quickly realized, well, I mean, it has brought electricity, but it has also brought a lot of hardship for people whose life was literally flooded out by the mm. building of this mm. dam. Mm. Oh, thank you. So, so you were talking with people, and I love the, what you said about talking with older people who have the benefit of the experience. But then also, I know that your archival research is in-depth. That's one of your main methodologies as a historian, as well as the interviews. And so I, I just I am so struck by the use of archival footage in the film, and I know that we're going to bring Lane <laughs> in too on this conversation, but uh, there's the beginning of the Nakumfra's baby where you see all this proclaim Ghana and freedom and the dancing and the music. It's just fantastic archival footage. And I wonder what are some of the archives that you consulted for the book you're writing and then whether or not that was able to carry over or whether those same archives uh, gave you access to the footage or how you transposed that type of archival research into the, the film making itself. And I know I'm going to turn to Lane next because I know, or, or just chime in at any, at any point, because I know this is also a question mm-hmm. for you as one of the two filmmakers. Well, I think what is especially was different concern to my first book, I mean, you know, you can't really ask people about their masculinity and there's no archive of masculinity. <laughs> but there's an archive about this dam. I mean, this dam from day one was a very well-studied project. And the Volta River Authority, the agency which built has operated, has been in charge of the dam, was very much aware of its own historical importance. So they kept every document. Actually, their archive is much better 
than the Ghanaian National Archive so wow. quickly. I actually knew a lot, at least from the perspective of the dam builder and from the from the um, the, the 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 planners and, and the agency they had built the dam, and I used in all histories to kind of complement to bring in other voices, other perspectives. For instance, from dam impacted communities, people who are resettled. But beyond that, I then also learned, you know, the electricity company has an archive, and and they, of course, I looked also transnationally. Actually, you know, here in California. Um, Kaiser Industries, Kaiser Aluminum, as we saw in the film, they were based in Oakland, and and the Kaiser family were also very, very aware of their their historical importance, and they kept everything of their correspondence, and you know this is this is all available in, in the in the Bancroft Library. So there was so there were various archives that was used, and since this project was also important for President Nkrumah and you know his his government at the time there was actually a lot of historical footage being produced as it was built. The problem was just the coup happened, as you saw in the first segment, in 1966, one month after the the project was inaugurated and and Nkrumah was swept from power. So the grand film he had imagined, which would see which would feature him in every other scene, could not be built, could not be realized, because he could not be mentioned publicly. So they literally had to, you know, cut him out on every, every, every wow. segment he appeared. Wow. So they had all this footage, but they kind of had to get rid of Nkrumah. So I knew about how all these progress films, which were shot, the documentation, it was more the challenge to find it, and it took quite a while to find it. But then, fortunately, there's also the Department of Information Services where they actually had their own film unit and there we then found some some mm. of the footage. So it was then, I mean, the, the genius of Lane's work to kind of bring my research and the, the archival footage we had realized to kind of bring this all together and help to, to turn this into a story which can also be told by film. Okay, so let's turn to Lane then. Thank you very much. So Lane is an artist who works in many media, including film, as you saw, and his films have screened internationally. So congratulations to you as well. Lane is the, uh, the co-producer with Stefan and then also Franz Windans Twine. And then Lane is also the director and the editor of the film. So uh, we have a lot that we can ask him about the, the project and its evolution. So we know from the film that you had been going to Ghana for a couple of decades and spending time there. And I'm just curious, when did you bring along a movie camera? <laughs> and when did you realize that, in fact, what you were doing is making a film? Well, I was always working on films in Ghana. In the 90s, when Stefan was working on his Making Men in Ghana, I was working on a film about the Akan proverb in Ghana, and I was really just led by my curiosity to learn how Akan proverbs work in the culture, in the music, in the clothing, in the dances, in the legal system traditionally. And so Stefan and I already started collaborating then because a lot of these old men and women who Stefan was interviewing, I would go along and film too and ask them about proverbs because the elderly people tend to know a lot of that knowledge. And um, our collaborations went on over the years so it became a thing that I would go along when it, you know, when it worked to some of Stefan's interview situations. And so when Stefan started interviewing people 
about the dam, I was going along just thinking I was creating an archive <laughs> and not having much of another idea about it. But then we came back to the U.S. and I cut some of these interviews together and I started realizing that I could bring people into conversation who don't know each other, who, you know, people who had planned the dam and then people who were affected by the dam mm-hmm. from different class backgrounds, different access to resources, and bring them into conversation. Mm-hmm. And as I started showing these little sketches around uh, different smaller audiences, I realized this is, this is valuable. And uh, it, it can bring to another public uh, voices that don't normally get heard and let alone get to speak to each other. And so we continued to work together like that. And I guess it wasn't until a few years later when the structure of Step in the <coughs> Book started to take shape that we realized, well, there, there could be a film for some of the chapters in this book. And so that created the thematic structure for it. And at this point now, it's a, it's a film series of six parts. I don't know if that was mentioned before, mm-hmm. but you've seen three, and there are three other parts. One is about how electricity was distributed around the country or not, um, taking you know 50 years in some cases for the electricity to reach some of these towns. Another one was about the resettlement of the 80,000 people who were in the, the basin that was flooded out, the best arable land in Ghana, which is the case in pretty much all large mm-hmm. dams. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, the final segment is about the town that was built right at the base of the dam, which was to be a model city, a Ghana city of the future. So it was planned and... Um, mm-hmm and built for the people who were building and building the dam and working in the industry of the dam. What was not planned was all of the other people who would move to this town because of the economic uh, opportunities. You know, the people who were selling food, doing hair, building, um, all the other industries that create a city. They ended up building a kind of a squatter town, which ends up being the focus of that, um, that film segment. Mm-hmm. So I, I always focus on, in each of the segments, what the grand plan was, what yeah. the ideal was, and then what happened that wasn't planned and how people mitigated that. Yeah, that's a remarkable thing about each of the, the stories or each of the parts of the film is that it begins with this grand dream, Ghana's oh. electric dream, and then it becomes a lot more complicated. And what I really love about the films is that the complications are sometimes among people you think would share interests, mm-hmm. uh, but not necessarily. So I, I, really, I want to ask about the array of voices and ask each one of you in a conversation with one mm-hmm. another to talk about, from your perspective, what it means to hear from different people with different interests in different communities from top down, as Stefan was talking about. He could have written a history that was just this top down history using the archives that were uh, uh, squirreled away by the, by the company. But no, these voices in the film are so important. And I love hearing both of you ask questions in English, but then also in Chui as you're interviewing people. It's wonderful. It, it you know, reflects the, the time that you've spent in Ghana. But anyway, from each of your perspectives, including Rudo, 
Mm. How, you know, what are the different people and communities and constituents you've talked about and, and what is the importance of learning from Ghanaian people and hearing Ghanaian voices? So as a Africa program director, as a filmmaker, as a historian, how do we take cognizance of and weave together these voices, whether they're, they're frictional or, or uh, resonant? Um, what resonates and what I found um, interesting in a way and kind of concerning is the woman who said um, um, it's okay to sacrifice 8,000 people for, in fact, it's 80,000 people. 80,000 people. Yeah. For 10 million. And I have found that um, in most places, people, as long as they are not the ones who are impacted, (laughs) it's okay for anybody else to sacrifice their kind of life. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And... um, Something else which, 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 which was quite peculiar about um, um, the Akosombo, which, which doesn't happen now in uh, most of the other planned or proposed dams, is the, the reaching out that they did um, in terms of um, they went on a, on a road show mm-hmm. to educate the people who were going to be affected. Never mind what they were telling them. Most likely, usually, they, there's a tendency to highlight the benefits and not um, uh, the negative yes. impacts. Yes. But mm-hmm. I, I haven't seen on the dams we are working on, on the, the current proposed dams, on some of them are currently being constructed, we haven't seen that willingness to let um, the affected people know what they are likely to be uh, to be faced with. Uh, usually people are told very late in the planning process uh, that they have to move um, mm. and not given the choice of where to move. Uh, there's not much negotiation in terms of um, compensation or what they aspire to have. It's almost like this is what it is, this is where you are going. Uh, and some people are not even compensated. They are just told to move off the land. Mm. Yeah. And then in man's greatest lake, mm. you, we see that people have not accepted to move to the resettlement areas, mm. but instead have come down to the lake to continue to fish, mm. and, then that, and then complications ensue. Mm. So could you talk a little bit about displacement since we, we're... Uh, on that topic, and Rudo um, and then Lena yeah, as well. I mean, no, no, go, go, Rudo, go ahead. Yeah, go right ahead. Um, the displacements, I think in Africa, it's one of the most uh, disturbing um, impacts. It's, I think, one of the worst of all the, the hydropower projects. It's one of the worst impacts uh, is the displacement of people, and mostly because our governments are not able to handle displacement well. Um, people are easily dismissed, like that woman was saying, you, we can sacrifice this much for this, for this right. many, for the nation, yet even the nation doesn't benefit. Um, people are hardly compensated for, for their livelihoods. Nowadays, 
with the work we've done and the pressure that people are putting. You can get compensated for assets, but not... And assets normally just, it's the housing, not for your land, not for your economic losses. If you're a fisherman or charcoal maker or whatever, you don't get compensated for that um, uh, in any fair and just way. Um, Sometimes people are moved so far away to barren lands, uh, like what happened on Lake Kariba. Um, and Meroe Dam on the Nile, uh, the tribes were moved from fertile ground to the desert, complete mm-hmm. desert land where you can't actually grow and do anything. And the impacts have actually also resulted in um, people migrating, especially in Northwest Africa, migrating to Europe because they get a little bit of cash mm-hmm. and the only thing they can see as a way of living is using that money to pay um, uh, people to take them across to Europe. So there's a lot of complex, unintentional, unforeseen, unplanned for uh, impacts surrounding uh, displacement. So, yeah, thank you for that dire and complex account. So how have you told that story so concisely and elegantly, but while still preserving the differences of opinion, they should be treated as heroes, or they, they always complain that, fishermen always complain that it used to be better, or, or all the things that you hear people saying, including the people in the communities saying there's nothing for us. How did you manage to create such a complex yet elegant and concise uh, film. You want to take this first? Well, I think what struck me most in the the making of the segment about the displacement was um, that the planners who who planned for the 52 resettlement towns where these 80,000 people were supposed to live, they had a completely different um, lens that they were looking at the world through. They... We're looking at the world through the lens of being educated elites. And they thought, uh, and listening to them and just respecting that what they were telling me was their truth, they thought that whatever they do for these 80,000 peasant farmers is going to make their lives better. Because from their point of view, they'll have electricity, they'll have houses with roofs that don't leak, They'll have access to, um, you know, this this world that we have access to, and it didn't uh, work out that way, of course, because the, what they left out, which Rudo uh, mm-hmm. alluded to, is the livelihood part. Their cocoa farms were mm-hmm. underwater, I mean, and then they were settled onto a hillside somewhere that, you know, it would take a long time to make that into a. A real livelihood. And suddenly you have to purchase the electricity. It's not exactly given to you. Yeah. But, but, you know, from their point of view, they hadn't lived that lifestyle. And Mm -hmm. it's almost a colonial kind of situation. The the colonial um, point of view being the educated one, looking on people who live in largely a non-cash society as being, they should be happy for anything that brings them closer to our way of living. Uh Okay. And so I guess what I really tried to do was not to judge them, but to listen respectfully 
to their point of view. And then I guess where my subversive voice comes in as a filmmaker is let that sit next to the story of the person who lost everything and bring them into conversation with each other. And I think um, everyone can learn from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 thank you. So uh, with the, the issue of displacement is so profoundly important and it, it uh, radiates from the one story into the other stories. But then there's this whole issue of ecology in man's greatest lake. And we begin, or you, you begin with the, the boom, because suddenly we have this huge lake and all the riverine tilapia are going to enjoy living, you know, in, I'm anthropomorphizing, but anyway, enjoy, enjoy living in the lake and eating the inundated uh, flora that uh, will not be there, clearly, once it dies from being you know, inundated. So at first, there you you have you have it structured so that there's this boom, and it seems okay. This is a dream. This is going to be wonderful. We'll all flock here. We'll be able to fish. We don't have to go to these resettlement communities. We can come and fish, and then little by little, as that piece unfolds, you realize well, the fishing is going to crash, and there's going to be the development of pen aquaculture. And then, of course, the situation of child slavery, or uh, and, and which, which, you know, at first, if one were tempted to think, oh, how awful of these parents, then you let it be known through your interlocutors that indeed they in the lower Volta area, what are their options? They want their children <coughs> to be fed. So I am really interested in the way that this sequence, this this part of the story of the film shows all the different elements of the human and non-human animal ecology and the natural environment weaving together and, and being uh, you know, forever altered by the presence of the lake. So now I think that Rudo is a, a, an expert, an, an aquaculture biologist, so I'm, I'm interested in what you have to say about the situation and what you think about the film and then what, what else you discovered as you made your way around Man's Greatest Lake. Mm-hmm. So, Rudo. Um, of course, um, the ecology of uh, any system will evolve, especially these artificially made systems. Um, you're looking at a situation where there's a lot of poverty, within the country, and anybody anywhere without any employment, they all congregate uh, around uh, the lake. They see opportunities of employment. Um, While initially there's a lot of um, fish as this this, uh, new created system, there is definitely going to be a crash. there's also the human aspect of managing that lake. Uh, and I, I feel like they were researchers, right? But they were just maybe collecting information. There was no intentional management of the right, system. Right. Um, never mind how difficult it might be in terms of controlling the, the fishery itself. Um, right now, they were talking of droughts and so forth. And it's something also that is um, manifesting on most of uh, the African countries because we are having 
at times three seasons of in, uh, insufficient rains uh, to the extent that you find um, the power generation goes very low as the lake levels go down, uh, the releases of water going downstream uh, are, are not done at all. Um, there's, there are times when, for example, on, uh, on the Zambezi, the Kariba, there were f- six years before they actually opened the gates. So you can uh-huh. imagine the impacts downstream. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, so there's always changing environment, and now it's even more complicated uh, with the climate change uh, effects. Right. Yeah, so, so I, I don't have an answer for that. It's just yeah. something difficult. How do you take cognizance of climate change? How do you identify mm. its effects, or mm. which are clearly <laughs> already present and not mm. in the future? Mm. Um, as international rivers, we 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 are against the construction of large uh, hydropower uh, dams, uh, basically because of the multiple impacts and impacts that cannot be managed, and because it it just destroys uh, the river ecosystem and the free flowing rivers. So uh, right now we find that. Um, um, with um, the climate change issues, um, people are justifying hydro or large dams oh, as oh, a way of uh, mitigating mm-hmm. climate right, change. Right, right, right. But that's okay. not true yeah. at all because of the other, um, other complex issues around that. It doesn't work as simply as that. Yeah. Yeah, I think, doesn't the film critique renewable? You know, you say Mm -hmm. it's a would-be renewable right at the beginning of Man's Greatest Mm -hmm. Lake, right? You Mm -hmm. say, well, it's a would-be renewable form of energy. Mm -hmm. But then the film, as the film unfolds, you realize, yet not viable. Mm. Can I? Yes, I think I want to say two things. One is, you know, I mean, actually, in the grand scheme of things, for the time, the Akosomba Dam was, you know, and, you know, in some ways, you know, people, at least for the time, it was actually better in terms of planning. You know, people who were displaced, you know, in Kariba, much less was done. And then Kuma, mm. being in Kuma, he really had this vision for his country mm-hmm. that, you know, he was going to, I mean, the, the mantra was nobody shall, shall, shall be worse off. Of course, that in the end, that didn't materialize. But what even in Kuma and the other planners didn't think about at all, and that, I think, is the case in almost all dam projects are people who live downstream. So there is something, you know, something might be done for the people who live in the, in the floodplain where this artificial lake is being created. But of course, downstream, below the dam, where the whole ecology is being changed, where you know, the water more continuously flows, and it used to be that every year in the big flood, this was really, there was silt was being brought in, and all the little streams and riverlets were filled up, so it was a a great fishing industry and, and the agriculture was quite mm. good too. There the planners, you know, completely fail. I mean that's also it's somehow it's somehow not what the, what they have to look at and and it's not immediate. And these are usually the people who are in a in a way the most forgotten because they mm-hmm. don't even they don't even even appear. Yeah. And another yeah. thing I think hmm. what, what I think is 
important to, to keep in mind, of course, you ask us the, you know, the different voices we ask. And of course, you know, there are the damn impacted people who have really suffered. And there are other people in Ghana who think, well, I mean, actually, the Kazomba Dam has been really important for our country. I mean, nobody in Ghana says we should pull down this dam and, you know, just live without it because it is the major, main source of, the most important source of electricity. So, so, I mean, even people who don't agree with the legacy of Nkuma, they say at least he built a Kosombo dam. So mm-hmm. people might say the dam is now old and needs support. Mm-hmm. We need other, other forms of power generation, but nobody says we should pull down the dam. Nobody so, in Ghana. Yeah, and what about people in elsewhere in Africa? Would people think that decommissioning dams is a good idea? People never heard of decommissioning dams. It's also because the options, the other technologies, solar, wind, and so forth, are very new. Lots of people don't know about that. Um, I went to school and I learned that uh, hydro is the cleanest renewable energy of all. Uh, and until maybe two decades ago, <laughs> until I started working in Kariba, mm-hmm. I didn't realize the impacts of large hydro. Mm-hmm. I actually, the first time I visited, I admired this huge concrete yeah. um, structure and was, I found it very amazing and I was proud to be, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know. But when I started visiting, uh, you know, the villages along the lakeshore, and meeting the isolated, um, I, I grew up in Zimbabwe. I never realized that in Zimbabwe there is that much marginalized people ever. And I realized that the people, the Tonga people who lived along the lake, when I started working in Kariba, were the poorest, the most uneducated of all. I was shocked to realize that there were kids who would get to 14 years without going to school. And these were people who had lived, whose um, maybe parents, grandparents, had lived in the valley before it was flooded and they were moved to these unproductive, cesta-infested areas where isolated, no proper roads. And since then, they rely on food aid because there's not enough rainfall. They can never in any one season managed to grow food. So those were some of my experiences personally. I, I also really, truly believed that hydro was the way mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. that. Well, like that yeah. wonderful moment in the last uh, story, I think it's almost time to open it up, but in the last story where the guy is showing you his 15-year reward refrigerator and his 10-year mm. reward <laughs> freezer. Fantastic moment in the film. Can you just talk about that enchantment with everything that modernity can bring and, and how it plays in the film? Well, that was something that, you know, it was a recurring theme that, um, yeah. as Stefan alluded to, that no one is against the Akasombo Dam, even though a lot of people have suffered from it. As a, as a country, mm-hmm. there's still this sort of lingering enchantment with the idea of the dam, the idea of development, the modernization, <laughs> and then some people who actually yeah. got some goodies. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the Valco story is a story of some of the winners, in a yeah. way. Um, yeah, that, unionized jobs. Mm-hmm. and yeah. The wealth of that river <laughs> yeah. has been harnessed 
mainly to benefit these multinational companies, but also to benefit some people yeah. um, in Ghana. Yeah. Uh, and, but it's, uh, it's always intriguing to me, or has been, that people don't question the overall ideology of, you know, a dam is going to be good for everyone, even if it wasn't good for me and my community. It's something we don't question, mm -hmm. and it makes me think we should... Until this panel. <laughs> Until your work, Rudolph. Yeah. It your makes work. me think we have to be yeah. suspicious of yeah. the technologies we embrace now yeah. and don't see the downsides of. Yeah. Because the downsides maybe don't don't appear until a bit later, so I think there's a lesson to be taken from mm -hmm. from the, this story yeah. of a 50-year dam. You know, what is our what is our nuclear industry going to look like in 50 years? It's supposed to be, in some people's minds, you know, clean. Um, yes. What is our solar industry going to look like in mm -hmm. 50 years? Mm -hmm. That some people say it actually takes 20 years just to mitigate the environmental impact of producing the solar cells to begin with. So right. all these things we have right. to well, learn from these 50-year examples yeah. and be yeah. suspicious. All right. Well, please join me in thanking our guests mm -hmm. for this amazing conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you all for coming. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.